Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Do you remember my dramatic recounting of the Battle of Dara? Belisarius' great victory over the Persians, where he dug holes in the ground to direct their cavalry? Or what about the outbreak of bubonic plague, and the vivid descriptions of the sway that cut across the Roman world? Well, if you enjoyed those, then I think you'll enjoy William Rosen's book, Justinian's Flea. It was the primary source for all that fascinating information about Yersinia Pestis. To listen to that book for free, go to audibletrial.com forward slash TV Critic. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 75 the Headless Council. Last time, we followed the Emperor Constantine V through a civil war and then a series of successful raids on the Caliphate while the Umayyads began to fall. In this episode, we'll follow the Emperor's continuing quest to be accepted as the legitimate and unquestioned ruler of Romania, while also confronting his iconoclasm head-on. I know that the story of the icons can be difficult to follow. More often than not, I'm describing things and then telling you that they didn't happen. I really think it is important to do that, though, because both reputable history books and many a Wikipedia page currently reproduce the stories which Nicephorus and Theophanes tell us, even though we know their accounts are highly suspect. Let me read you a passage which demonstrates this problem. This is Theophanes introducing the Emperor Constantine V. Now, this pernicious, crazed, bloodthirsty, and most savage beast, from the very start parted company from our God and Saviour Jesus Christ, his pure and all-holy mother, and all the saints, led astray as he was by magic, licentiousness, bloody sacrifices, by the dung and urine of horses, and delighting in impurity and the invocations of demons. In a word, he was reared from early youth in all soul-destroying pursuits. Quite the introduction. 
Theophanes was a monk and grew up in a world which had thoroughly rejected Constantine's legacy. So here he's throwing every slur he can at the emperor to explain why the horrendous time of icon breaking came about. Back in the present, the issue of icons doesn't seem to have been a major concern for the emperor until after the plague struck Constantinople in 747. The numbing sight of corpses piled high in the streets could only mean that God was angry with his people. Constantine understood that many would blame him. He claimed to be the Lord's vice-regent on earth. Surely he must bear some of the responsibility. As you may remember from the interview with David Gyllenhaal, it seems like the government under Justinian began to shift responsibility for the initial outbreak onto the wider public, so that their sins, rather than those of the Vasilefs, would come under the microscope. This certainly seems to have been Leo's response to the volcanic eruption at Thera early in his reign. His decision to remove some of the icons from the capital's churches was intended to eliminate inadvertent idolatry. God's anger would then be mollified, and the people could go back to normality. Like many sons, Constantine followed his father's example and responded to the plague in similar fashion. Once New Rome was partially repopulated, the emperor circulated a speech, or a sermon, that he and his advisers had prepared. It was sent to churches across the empire to be read aloud, and it made a theological case for why the devotion shown to images was incorrect. He argues that to draw an image of Jesus is harmful because only his human form can be drawn, thus excluding the divine part of him. Which, as you know, might be seen as controversial in a world so concerned with the exact nature of Christ. He makes the point that instead of icons, Christians should look to the Eucharist, the bread and wine, as the true image of Jesus. After all, That's how he told his followers to remember him. So far, so clear. Of course, we don't know what else Constantine said in his sermon, because no copies survive. They were all burnt or thrown away once the iconophiles came to power. We only know some of what it said because the iconophiles quote parts of it as they critique it. What scholars detect from what survives is that the emperor doesn't only seem concerned with icons. There are hints that his major concern may have been to defend himself against accusations that he was unworthy to rule. As I mentioned, finger-pointing at your ruler was an understandable response to a natural disaster. But modern historians speculate that the text refers to some other rumour about Constantine possibly spread by Artavasdos during his years as the usurping emperor. We don't know what this would have been. It could have been to accuse Constantine of not really being a Christian, or in one way or another, not being an orthodox Christian. This might have been connected to his father's policy on icons in some way. That would be the neat conclusion, as it would link icons to the accusations. But it's possible that the rumour was something more personal. 
like that the emperor suffered from an illness like epilepsy or even leprosy. Such conditions would mark him as physically abnormal, a bit like having a slit nose, and thus suggest he was not a worthy emperor. Obviously, I have no idea what the truth was. If he did suffer from a medical condition, then it clearly didn't hamper him on campaign. The reason I bring all this up is to remind you of the complex motives behind all iconoclast policies. It's possible that Constantine really did believe his subjects' idolatry caused the plague, or it could be that he decided to refute some nasty rumours about his own person and change the subject by shifting everyone's attention back to icons. Whatever the truth, the imperial sermon was discussed throughout the land as Constantine prepared the ground for an ecumenical council which could cement his position into the laws of the church. The council would take place in 754 in the Hieria Palace, which is where Heraclius went to plan his great campaign against the Persians. The council had no official name, like the Eighth Ecumenical Council, or the First Council of Hieria, because it would later be annulled by the Iconophiles. Some would sneer at it as the Headless Council, because of the lack of senior churchmen who were present. There is some logic in this, as none of the Eastern Patriarchs, who lived in the Caliphate, or the Pope, attended, but it seems like representatives of some of them did. Also, the Patriarch of Constantinople died just before the council began, and a new one was only elected toward the end of proceedings. The absence of these men made it easier for the iconophiles to overturn its rulings. However, over 330 bishops were present, which is far more than attended the last council held by Justinian II. This high attendance figure is one of the clues we are left with to refute iconophile propaganda. At times, when you read Nicephorus and Theophanes, you might imagine a world where the emperor stomped his boot on the throat of the church and priests everywhere were forced to choose between submission or torture. But the presence of most of the bishops of Anatolia at the council suggests otherwise. There doesn't seem to have been a huge amount of resistance to Constantine's icon policy. The council lasted from February to August. You'd think that was enough time for any objections to have been given a proper airing. Again, the written records of the council were destroyed, and we only know what the iconophiles chose to ridicule but it seems that there was general approval for the emperor's argument that Christ could not be represented by an image, since this would separate the human from the divine. Ingeniously, it was pointed out that an image which did manage to convey his divine nature would risk going too far in that direction and end up representing the monophysite point of view. That argument doesn't work for images of human beings, though, like Mary or the saints, but they could be dismissed on the simpler ground that they were idolatrous images, like the ones the pagans used to make. The saints and martyrs were residing in heaven with God, calling on them to appear on earth to help you was blasphemy.
showing devotion to images in church or in private was now punishable by law. But there was to be no witch hunt, no public bonfires or cleaning crews. In fact, the council explicitly outlawed the seizure of church property or the reworking of altar cloths or wall hangings without permission. The implication of this ruling being that overzealous iconoclasts had already been doing this out in Anatolia. We hear reports of a monk who spoke out against the emperor and was publicly scourged, but he was being punished for deliberately anti-imperial statements, rather than for continuing to venerate icons. At best we can tell, the real results of the council was the removal of icons from the apse of churches across the empire. There isn't any evidence that people's homes were invaded in search of hidden images or anything like that. As with earlier enactments against, say, the Monophysites, the emperors were keen to establish the official position and hoped that with time everyone would get on board. Later down the road, certain churches, including the Hagia Sophia, would have mosaics removed and replaced with simple crosses. But these seem to have only taken place as part of necessary refurbishment, rather than a puritanical assault on church images. Plenty of buildings survived with vibrant images intact. As with Constantine's initial sermon on the subject, the council was not designed to be just a discussion of icons. By getting his theological argument approved by the church, Constantine was further justifying his position as emperor and gaining official acceptance of his version of the events of his reign and his father's. But the emperor was not the only one with an agenda. The council confirmed the idea that it was the Eucharist, the bread and wine blessed by a priest, that was the only fitting image of Christ. This had the effect of reinforcing to the Christians of Byzantium that the only source of divine authority was through your friendly, neighbourhood, imperially sanctioned clergyman. That holy man in the hills, he doesn't really speak for God. That shrine, which works miracles, not really where you should be spending your time. That's the inference that modern historians have taken from the council. As I mentioned back in the introduction to iconoclasm, we have to remember the concerns of all the small communities out in Anatolia or on islands in the Aegean. Generations had now grown up who knew only permanent insecurity. It seems like the word of the government and the clergy was not as trusted as it had once been, and perhaps this council attempted to address that concern. In an interesting historical footnote, the bishop who presided over the council was the son of former emperor Absimar the Admiral. So some disgraced or disfigured men could go on to lead happy lives. In late August 754, the emperor and his bishops processed along the Messi to the Forum of Constantine where they read out the conclusion of the council. Although most of the empire's clergy seem to have been on board, I should stress that not all were. Several men were anathematized 
or condemned by the council for their support for icons. Germanos, the former patriarch of Constantinople, was among those, but so too was John of Damascus. For those who heard the Origins of Islam episode, you may remember John as one of our witnesses on the formation of the Muslim religion. John was a renowned theologian who by now was a monk at the famous St. Sabbas Monastery in Palestine. He wrote a series of arguments against Constantine's policies, which were later picked up and used by the iconophiles. It's interesting that the emperor went to the trouble of condemning John, in part because John was really beyond the emperor's jurisdiction, as he was living deep in the caliphate, Yet at this stage, John was still very concerned with what Roman orthodoxy was, and the emperor was obviously keen to silence all critics, no matter where they lived. But I also see in it a warning to the Romans, because although a learned man like John was still engaged with ecumenical business, the ordinary Christians of Syria and Palestine were far less concerned with what the emperor thought about their icons. In the next episode, we'll talk about the resistance to the council from within the empire. 300 bishops may have agreed on how icons should be venerated, but the many holy men and women out in the provinces and in the monasteries had not been consulted. As far as Constantine was concerned, the matter was closed and he returned to war. The last action we saw in the previous episode was the emperor leading his forces to Kamatcha, a fortress in Armenia, which he captured and garrisoned. That actually took place in 755, the year after the council. Two years later, the emperor led his forces into Cilicia, where he actually faced off against Arab troops defending the vital frontier zone. By now, though, the Abbasids had taken control of the caliphate and sent word to the emperor that they'd be interested in a truce while they consolidated power. Constantine decided to oblige them because he'd received word that the Bulgars were on the march against him. As you know, the Bulgar steppe warriors had initially crossed the Danube seeking refuge and were delighted to find this pocket of land with basically unarmed Roman and Slav peasants occupying it. The warrior aristocracy of this new state therefore had two clear aims. Defend the Danube frontier from other tribes trying to cross it, and protect their southern border against the Byzantines. The aim of the game was very much survival. That's why the gamble was taken to back the Byzantines against the Arabs during the siege of 717. A weak Roman Empire was a more secure neighbour than the ever-expanding caliphate. Constantine's repopulation project in Thrace was seen as a threat by the Bulgar High Command. A resurgent Roman population with a theme army of Thrace to defend it might be a prelude to an attempt by the empire to conquer the Bulgars. This was of course, the long-term aim of the empire, so the Bulgars were right to be worried. 
On being informed that new settlers were occupying fortified towns, the Bulgar Khan had sent word to Constantine that he would like the Romans to resume paying the tribute that had been organised back in the days of Constantine IV. Our Constantine refused, and so in 755, while he was in Cilicia, the Bulgars raided Thrace up to the Long Walls. They marched home with prisoners and booty, and left much chaos behind them in Thrace. Local Slavic tribes and brigands took advantage of the absence of imperial authority to attack the farmers there. The emperor soon responded, and by 759 he had moved the best Anatolian army units into the Balkans to begin campaigning there. That first year, operations were directed against the Slavs of western Thrace. Order needed to be restored, and the Romans had no trouble in shoving aside the tribes who opposed them. This brought a wider area of Thrace back under imperial control. If you're looking at the map, then you can draw a diagonal line from Anchialus on the Black Sea coast across past Adrianople down to the Aegean. Very slowly, the Romans were recovering the position that they'd abandoned in the time of Heraclius. The following year, it was time to take on the Bulgars directly. This was the first time an emperor had been in a position to go on the offensive since the men from the steppes first arrived. However, the Bulgar state was well positioned behind the Hemus mountain range. On our modern map, it's called the Balkan Mountains, and it formed a solid barrier to invasion, only dropping down to the ground on the coast with the Black Sea. Unless you wanted to risk the narrow mountain passes, then this was the route an army from the south had to take. So as Constantine marched north, his army was easily spotted on the road from Anchialus. In the battle which followed, the Romans emerged victorious, but there were heavy casualties on both sides. Both the Stratigos of Thrace and the postal Logothete fell in the fighting. Anticipating a tough battle, though, the imperial fleet had been dispatched in advance to the Danube. The force which landed there sacked the Bulgar settlements in the north, causing much damage. The Khan sued for peace and sent hostages to the emperor in exchange for a truce. However, politics at the Bulgar court were as vicious as anywhere. For appeasing the Romans, that particular Khan and his supporters were overthrown and hung. The Bulgars feared that peace would only allow the empire more time to fortify its borders. This violent coup, however, upset many of the Slav tribes who had been loyal to the old Khan. Large numbers of them defected to Constantine during the chaos. He gladly received them and settled them in Anatolia. The following spring, 763, Constantine marched north again. He seems to have loaded most of the Tachmata onto transport ships to surprise the Bulgars, or to save them the rough journey north. Either way, they landed at Anchialus and were met by the Bulgars. Again, the Romans emerged victorious after a hard, day-long battle. The imperial cavalry were too much for the combined Bulgar-Slav army. 
In theory, Imperial troops were better trained and more disciplined than their Bulgar rivals. It's when the Romans were not organised, or on terrain which suited the enemy, that they were usually defeated. When an emperor like Constantine could properly plan a campaign and force the Bulgars to fight a pitched battle, then the empire could triumph again. Speaking of which, the emperor led many prisoners home, who he paraded down the streets of Constantinople for the cheering crowds to see. Once again, Constantine had brought victory and was surely favoured by God. Remember that one way to convince people that your icon policy is correct was to defeat your enemies. As that was a sure sign of divine favour, it surely followed that your ecclesiastical innovations must have heavenly sanction. However, this convincing defeat did not break the Bulgars, who were dedicated to their survival. This pocket of steppe grassland surrounded by river and mountains was too precious to be surrendered. The Khan who oversaw this humiliation was murdered. Someone must be found who could keep the Byzantines from the door. The new Khan, Vinek, understandably sought a peace deal with Constantinople. But when this was discovered, he was deposed and fled for his life to Constantine. The emperor welcomed him, and marching back to the border in 765, got the Bulgars to take him back and agree to peace. Constantine was now 47 years old, and had ruled the empire for 24 of them. If our historians weren't so set against him, they might be talking him up as a great ruler. We know that the collapse of the Umayyads is the real reason that he's had such an easy ride, but still, he deserves credit for his good management of the state. You'd think that he'd done more than enough to earn the people's respect. However, in our next episode, the emperor will face another plot against his throne, and his response will form the basis for legends about what a horrible, icon-smashing, monk-humiliating monster he was. It's hard to offer any firm evidence about his actual personality. Our historians tell us that he held many banquets at court and was fond of music and dancing. His love of music seems to be confirmed by the gift of an organ which he made to Pippin, King of the Franks. He isn't even portrayed as being anti-art, as he's said to have decorated various rooms in the palace and elsewhere with scenes from nature. However, we're also told that the emperor took homosexual lovers and held secret orgies, both of which seem unlikely from a Christian emperor and certainly fit with their attempts to demean his character, but that's what they said. Conjecture suggests that the officers of the Tachmata were regularly invited to the merriment at the palace. The new force would prove to be very loyal to their master, and we assume he rewarded them at every opportunity. His first wife, Irene the Khazar, died shortly after giving birth to their son Leo in 750, and his second wife, Maria, also passed away young before having any children. He then married Eudocia, a woman from a noble Byzantine family, and they would have six children together. 
So all we can safely conclude is that the emperor was as productive in his personal life as he was in public. We close this episode with the one area where Constantine suffered a serious defeat during this time, over in Italy. In 751, the Lombard king Aistulf succeeded in capturing Ravenna for good. The exarch's troops had been defeated, and no reinforcements from Constantinople could be spared. The surrounding lands were incorporated into the Lombard kingdom. The emperor attempted diplomacy, but Aistulf would not return any of the lands he'd taken. This ended the Byzantine presence in northern Italy, except for Venetia, which the imperial fleet could still defend. While this situation had been a long time coming for the empire, it left the Pope feeling very vulnerable. The papacy had benefited from a division of power across the peninsula, but now faced potential domination from the Lombard court at Pavia. The sitting Pope, Stephen III, wasted no time in seeking a new ally. Two years after Ravenna fell, he made his way through potentially hostile Lombard territory to meet the King of the Franks, Pippin. Pippin agreed to bring the papal lands under his protection, and in 754 besieged Aistulf at Pavia until he agreed to accept the situation. Two years after that, the Lombards broke the treaty, the Franks returned, and defeated them again. The papacy had found a far greater defender than the Byzantines had ever been. It was a turning point in the history of Italy, and despite attempts to woo Pippin, Constantine could not interest him in returning Ravenna to the empire. Byzantine holdings in Italy were entirely in the south now, and there was nothing more that could be done. That's it for this episode. But remember that if you want to listen to Justinian's Flea, and you live in the US or Canada, then you can for free if you sign up for a 30-day trial of Audible service. It was while reading that book that I began to fully see the way the history of Byzantium could be different from the history of Rome. I didn't need to keep the story short and sweet. I could take time to delve into the drama and answer the why questions that the narrative provoked. So if you want to hear about how bacteria, fleas and swollen groins go together, then go to audibletrial.com forward slash tvcritic to start your free trial.